Hey, good morning, Farah. Are you guys exhausted? It's very early. Yeah. What's happening here? <laughs> we have Sorry. to we have to drink wine now. Oh, this is <laughs> this is the breakfast, the famous breakfast Chablis yeah. of Lebanon. We're ready. All right. Let's do it. Are you ready? It's 6.45 a.m. and the host of a wine-obsessed Lebanese podcast and newsletter called B is for Bacchus is picking us up in her mom's car to make the climb out of Beirut, past snow-capped mountains, dusty villages, endless military checkpoints, almost to the border of Syria itself for a full day of Lebanese wine. Farah Beru is her name, and she is taking us to Domaine Werdi, one of the great wineries of the Beka Valley, a winery whose roots started out actually in Aleppo, Syria, long ago. But before that, it is time for an early morning trip to Baalbek, the ruins of the colossal Roman temple of Bacchus, who was the god of, among other things, wine and group sex. What a combination. What a testament to the eternal determination of the people in this part of the world to live and live well. This is my last episode from Lebanon, and I was very taken by the daily fight of the revolution and all these people, including our guests, who were pushing every day for the city and the country that they deserve. The 18 months since my visit have been even harder than any of them or us could have imagined. And not all of those guests have been able to even stay in Beirut. I will have updates from this episode's guest Farah at the end of the show. But for now, let's take a last fond look at Beirut from a bit of a remove, from the valley beyond the coast, from the distant past, through the belly of a wine glass. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. was the city of the city of the sun, the Heliopolis. Uh, the name Baalbek originates, they have multiple theories, but they say Baal, which meant God, or God of Baalbek, like Bek, Bekaa Valley. The God of the Bek, okay. Yeah, so this is the Propylaea. The Jeez. granite is from Egypt, so the reddish pink granite. Yeah. And the stones are from nearby quarries. Somebody brought this from Egypt? Yeah. <laughs> Good lord. White stone and white marble, uh, mostly limestone. Uh, Lebanon is lucky to have about 80% limestone soils, which is rare because over the, like, the entire planet is only 5%. Huh. And limestone is great for wine because it uh, has good drainage but retains moisture. So that works in our favor as well. Wow. All right, yes, so if you're going to make a temple to Bacchus, yeah. you might as well make it out of limestone. Uh, it was mainly also because it was um, like geographically uh, in the middle of trade routes from Tyre to Syria, Yeah. Uh, from all the way across to Turkey. Jesus. It was also a Phoenician uh, site that was, I guess you would say, pagan. Um, with the Phoenician gods that were then replaced by Jupiter, Venus, and Mercury. So we have the triad here of Roman mythology. And then we have Bacchus kind of in the middle. In the middle. Yeah, so the He's... Jupiter temple is here, then Venus, and then Mercury is further up. And is it like, <laughs> do you put Bacchus in the middle of all this stuff because wine is your, your gateway, your... Uh, personally? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, well, or no, just in terms of uh, I, where they would locate a Temple of Bacchus in the middle of I mean, Jupiter yeah, and Venus. It's a strange thing. To, I guess people wouldn't expect it to be here as well. Yeah. To have like a, a full-on temple to the god of wine and um, orgies and hedonism. But well, Lebanon knows how to party. I yeah, think that's what I guess they're we saying. we still have it going for us. <laughs> 
I mean, every every turn here is like, yeah, I, I don't know, the fogginess uh, is also very... Eerie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really cool. And then over there, uh, at the top of each arch, you have a different relief. Uh, one of them is Medusa on this side. I mean, this place. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, see how you have like etchings? Yeah. So high up? That's because most of it was sand up until they dug it out. Right. So it was just like they were just standing and etching. Wow. Damn. And more signs that it's the Temple of Bacchus are there across the steps. So if you go up close, you can see like women that are maybe a little off balance. Oh, yeah. And um, the tipsy. Yeah, there are some reliefs on the step banisters that are almost gone, but they're, see the acoustic? Yeah. See. So they install a stage here that goes to the top of that step, the mid step. So yeah. this is all covered up when they do the concert. Yeah. Uh, so then you, when you come during the summer months, you don't get to see this. Yeah. Because it's hidden, but these are like the women holding amphora and like dancing. It's, it's almost there. Every oh, time I come here, it looks different because of the light. And so they've got the flowy, see it more or you don't. the flowy robes, kind of a voluptuous woman yeah, kind of swaying while carrying a giant amphora of wine. Check it out. Yeah, 5,000 years of drunkenness. <laughs> carvings. In Greek. Boy, and they got Somebody wrote Nestorov in Russian in 1860. There you go, Nestorov was here. This is a baller graffiti wall, man. <laughs> that is insane. So what an amazing testament to 5,000 years of wine drinking and <laughs> making. <laughs> I am just agog. <laughs> wow. Now the stone is so cold from overnight, and that's going to get yeah. super warm, right? Also, when the why sun... it's great for uh, winemaking here yeah. is we get uh, great diurnal shifts, so like big shifts in temperature. It gets really, really cold at night on the valley floor, yeah. and then it gets really hot during the day because it's just pure sunshine. We've got really great factors for making wine. Like just naturally, the things that you can't control usually in winemaking are on our side. We have good sunshine, good rainfall, natural water table, limestone soils. People have different responses to staring history in the face. I suppose as a citizen of an empire that seems intent on ending itself early these days, I could get anxious looking at the ruins of someone else's civilization. But I had the complete opposite reaction here in Baalbek. You can hear it in my double rainbow holy shit voice. And it's true. What a place. An entire ruined plain of toppled columns and upright temple walls, all standing guard under a heavy morning fog. There are no roped-off sections here. You just pick your way over the stones to get to the Temple of Bacchus, matching footsteps with Phoenicians and Byzantines and six millennia of other notables who have walked these same grounds. There are some facts about the Lebanese wine history that just seem unreal, like the fact that they made wine here in this very valley for the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. But Baalbek, in Baalbek you can really feel it. It is so very real. We went down valley from there for a long and fruitful day of tasting wine, notably at Domaine Huerdi. And then at the end of it all, Farah and I sat down and talked through wine, life, war, and revolution all over another couple of glasses. This is Domaine de... Turel. From the Beka Valley. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. So they're the oldest commercial winery. Uh, we have a winery that is considered the oldest winery, which is the Xado Winery. Um, they're somewhat, they're neighbors almost, about 15 or 20 minutes distance between each other. 
Uh, but Domaine de Terrel was the oldest commercial winery because it started out that way. The founder was a Frenchman who was um, recruited to work on the highway between Beirut and Damascus. And while he was in Stura, which is where the winery is, he just fell in love with the surroundings and decided to set up shop and start a winery. And he did what French men do. He started to make wine. Yep. In situ. And you can tell yeah. it's old because it's got Latin on the cork. Yeah, they date back to um, 1868. Yes. Yeah. I'm reading the bottle. I'm cheating. Uh, but that is what it says. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, 1868, which is very, very old. But usually, so wine and... Lebanon started as a monastic pursuit. Yeah, well, it depends how far back you go because we've been part of the wine history for millennia now. So officially, yeah, it started with part of that being such, part of the monasteries. But that is such an asshole question on my point because you literally dragged me to a <laughs> four thousand year old temple That's, to Bacchus. It's probably older. Uh, Five thousand. <laughs> Throw a couple thousands here and there. In order to make the point, I think, uh, among <laughs> others, that wine is really fucking old in Lebanon. And, and we've I'm been like, at it for a while, yeah. And I'm like, hey, so this started with monks it's okay. it's in the been a 1800s. Long day. It has been a long day. That is, it's the downside. You take me on a, a long and frothy wine tour, <laughs> I'm going to have forgotten everything that started uh, our day. But you had a good time. That's the point. So I, I believe I had an amazing time. <laughs> um, so our day-to-day... Was uh, started at 6:45 in the morning. Uh, drove in a straight shot up the hills, kind of over one mountain range, and uh, yeah. So the, the Lebanon over Dahr al Baydar, so up the Alay Highway all the way up towards the Syrian border, um, and you go across this highway that overlooks the Bekaa Valley. So you usually see patchwork, whereas we saw fog this morning because it was so early. That usually burns off as of 10 o'clock, which is what happened once we were in the middle of the ruins of Baalbek, the ancient city yeah. uh, dedicated to the sun. Dedicated to the sun and to wine. Yes, also home of the Temple of Bacchus. Yeah. Um, the scale of those ruins is kind of astonishing. Um, and it is, as we were talking about, as we're kind of walking under these 100-foot columns, it's a great rejoinder to anybody who would say that there was not like a wine culture here or something. I mean, it's literally. Yeah, I don't know if you would really need all the wineries or even the historical references or the Phoenicians or anything to really prove anything beyond showing them this massive temple with, you know, grapevines across the portal and poppies and cupids and just like Bacchanalian references of people being intoxicated and really happy let's say and and so when you decided to start uh among your many pursuits a podcast about wine Mm -hmm. calling it b is for bacchus yeah where did that come from uh so by chance i well not chance but just i noticed this common thread across these different wine regions was that a lot of them started with the letter b biblos beirut pamduan uh, Bekao, Baalbag, they all happen to start with the letter B. And in essence, it tied it all together to the god of wine, Bacchus, who is also Dionysus in Greek mythology. And it just had a nice ring to it. Um, and for some reason, the letter B personally has also had a lot of connections. Um, my father, my family name is Burro, starts with a B. Uh, Beirut has been a very big part of my life. Um, Another thing is a blog I have that's just called Bambi Soapbox. It's another B. So it just kind of is this recurring letter. What does Bambi Soapbox stand for? Or why, why um, that name? That was just a nickname that a friend gave me once because of my eyes. remind They remind her of Bambi. And so I wanted to start out as an anonymous blogger. So I just used that because no one really knew the nickname. It's true, listener. <laughs> Farah has large and... Uh, brown eyes, yeah. Large brown Bambi eyes. So Bambi soapbox. Yeah, and I so wanted to just surrounded by bees. Didn't want people to know it was me at first, and then people could tell it was me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was the first like endeavor, um, as far as like online expression, maybe. Um, so it's just it's been something that's kind of always been uh, in my life somehow. So all of these bees led you back to Bacchus, that that this was somehow wine. Yeah, it worked, and I felt like something that 
a lot of audiences could understand, not just locals. And it's something, it's easy to understand. It's easy in English. It's not a heavy Arabic word that might not be understood by foreign audiences as well. Um, and it started out more of a series of classes dedicated to Lebanese wine and teaching the locals and visitors a crash course of the whole history of the uh, our historical significance in the wine industry. And then through researching for more classes and special topics and whatnot, I met a lot of people and got to hear their stories and it just felt unfair not to share it with more people. And that's why the podcast was born and don't hold out. If yeah, you got the stories, you got to share them. Exactly. And it, it was just more of an excuse for me to learn more and meet more people. And I wanted it to be regional as well because I feel like not just Lebanon, but our neighbors and the Caucasus and uh, the Eastern Mediterranean don't get enough credit for what they've done for the wine industry and where it started and what they're doing now is also kind of shaping new trends uh, across Georgia and Greece. They're all doing new things that are actually old practices. They're just bringing them back. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think enough people are talking about it. And I want to learn more about it too. So it's a great way to do that. There is a lot of talk about kind of heritage agriculture and, you know, the kind of deep, the deep cuts of the history um, that I think elides the fact that there are cultures in places like Georgia, like here, that are still doing a nearly uninterrupted agricultural practice, whether it's around wine or something else, you know, that, that Western Europe is, is just sort of faking it a little bit or, <laughs> you know, they're... They, well, you have to give them credit. They, they did take it where it went let's say um and there were interruptions in this part of the world uh whether it was religious or through other conquering wars or whatnot so there was like a pause let's say so they did take it somewhere and we well, did learn from that too but. yeah i mean interruptions is a uh, is a good kind of catch-all phrase give me, <laughs> give me the the what's the the cliff notes version of some of the interruptions uh, um to ottoman empire civil war uh so under the ottomans who were here for a long time mm -hmm. they had special dispensation for christians to continue to make wine right in, yeah in their monasteries but right, for religious uh, purposes essentially the ottoman empire had outlawed alcohol yeah but there were still people making their own like ada which is the aniseed spirit uh at home like you know cooking kind of like moonshine you know like their own thing in the bathtub um obviously not like that but um yeah the ottomans prohibited alcohol for a big chunk of that time and then through that the monasteries were making their wines and it was it started out initially as a religious um, activity but it gradually grew into something that had a lot more potential right um, and just the production was just like becoming more and more prolific I guess is the right word um, all the way up until the point where the Vatican was just like okay, you guys need to sell off all of these extra activities that are bringing in money. This isn't what the church is about. And Chateau Xara is the one I'm referencing because they're the oldest winery and that's where they started, is that they sold off the winery itself and it became a private business. So the monks were making too much money. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I'd say, uh, and, and then that, of course, after the Ottomans came various others, including the French who would send their... Yeah. Their, their they brought their influence, they brought their expertise, but I think they mostly brought their audience to drink it. Like there was a market suddenly to push production further. Um, and then another in, like another interruption was the Civil War in the 70s. Yeah. At which, least I'm speaking particularly about Lebanon now, obviously. Mm -hmm. And which brought uh, the winemaking that had been there to somewhat of a hold, but not entirely. Yeah, it was somewhat still in its infancy anyway. Like, there wasn't a lot happening. There were very few producers at the time, commercially. There were less than five. But it stalled things because of occupation of various other countries and occupying the actual wineries themselves. And then just, you know, it not really being something that people were focusing on during war times. It's not a product that is top of mind, obviously. But it's also... Um, some of them were still producing, but that's when export became a thing through Chateau Muzar. So that's where Lebanese wine suddenly became recognized abroad. And it wasn't just about 
the local market. And I want to make a point to say that he didn't, Serge Hoshad, which was the person who was like the wine grandfather of Lebanon, he didn't make it a point to market Lebanese wine to push this like exotic idea of uh, wine in the Middle East or it was more about showing people that there was another side of the country when all of the media was showing it uh, associated with war and destruction and death. There was another side that we actually enjoy life. There's, there's more to our country. There, we're not a desert. We, you know, we don't have camels. We're trying to break down these misconceptions. And that's kind of what some of the wines and wineries are still doing today is trying to be ambassadors for the country and yeah. break down these... Um, Listen, it would be amazing if you did have camels. I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> we have one camel, and it's outside of Balbak, just for, like, just, photographs. Just kicking it. Yeah, just to... He's like, this. I'm in the wrong part of Arabia. You should not be there. <laughs> like, just perpetuating the wrong idea. Uh, camels notwithstanding, we saw snow-peaked yeah. <laughs> mountains today. Yeah. Uh, it is obviously an incredibly lush and green place. It is not... Um, what your average Frenchman or American might think of as the Middle East uh, in, in that sense. So it's more trying to express that this culture is unique and different and probably more like uh, a, a Western culture in certain aspects. And some parts think. of it, yeah. yeah. Um, I think some people have associated with Singapore, how Singapore is kind of like the good gateway to be exposed to Asia. Like it's a soft mix of Asia but also a little western so you're not too uncomfortable Beirut is kind of like that where you have enough of the western influence to feel familiar but it is still different and it's a good starter point but we are still like there's still conservative people there it's a mix of different values and different religions it is a melting pot and there are a lot of problems especially right now given what's going on in the country but I think um The thing we've been trying to defeat for so long is this reputation of Beirut being equal to destruction or equal to chaos or equal to this idea, this like metaphor that people use, like, oh, it's just like Beirut. And every time we try to defeat that, something else happens, though. <laughs> so It's an uphill battle yeah. when, when they keep on bringing back bad old Beirut yeah, into as much as existence. We try to push that it's, you know, safe and friendly and hospitable and it's great food and there's a warmth here like most mediterranean cities or countries rather yeah there's always something in the news or something that happens that kind of makes us have to start all over again let me take a moment to talk about the first story that really grabbed my mind about the Beka valley it was written by a journalist named anthony el gosain a writer who was unfortunately out of the country during my time in beirut but who did a phenomenal story called From Cannabis to Cabernet about the efforts of the Beka Valley to find a legal crop after the civil war and the pillaging Syrian occupation had turned it into what the U.S. Congress once called the world's largest drug farm. The story is wickedly entertaining, and it makes clear that hash is still an excellent business in this part of the world, But if the farmers of the Beka Valley can rely on wine as a business, they will. So, you want to be a soldier in the war on drugs? Drink Lebanese wine. You know, one of the things that I am getting the impression about this particular revolution that's happening now is there is a sort of confidence that people must have in order to take to the streets to cause disruption in a place that fears it and has feared it for so long, right? You're, you're saying, you know what, we deserve better. And even if it looks bad, even if it's disruptive, even if it might upset this balance that, you know, the government has been convincing us or trying to convince us we need, uh, you're still going to go out there and fight for a better, uh, a better future. Yeah, there, there is an element of hope that I haven't seen in a long time. I mean, like, not with myself, but amongst the general public on the streets. Uh, Is that hope you don't have or hope you've always had? No, I've had it, okay. um, but I haven't seen it in others as much. Like there are, you know, certain friends or some people that feel the same, but it's hard to keep, uh, keep that going and keep it um, replenished. And then to see the mass public suddenly share that is nice because there were so, there were so many 
periods of time where either through elections or through whatever, where you would be like, oh, maybe I'm the minority. Maybe, maybe it's not that everybody wants what I want for this country. Maybe I'm wrong. And now you're like, oh, okay, they're there. And people have kind of woken up. I wouldn't say it's confidence exactly. I think it's just that it's gotten so bad that you can't really um, argue against it. Like, I'm I'm mistaking desperation for confidence. No, I don't again. want to put it as desperation <laughs> either because it's it's really impressive and it's um, it's really beautiful to finally see everybody come together this way. For so many years, people have been othering just different cities within the same country and feeling like there's just been this fear that is based on nothing. It's just misunderstood, um, unknown, and this narrative that's been like perpetuated through um, misunderstanding maybe. Um, and it's been nice to see those boundaries melt away and people start to reach out to each other and try and help each other. And there's like this common ground that now we have to look out for each other and while they don't care, uh, they being the government and the ruling class, and it all started before the protests actually began. Like, it became really, really clear about a week before the protests started, there were some wildfires in the Shuf Mountains here. And the response was just complete failure as far as response from the state. And they hadn't maintained the helicopters that were supposed to drop water, the, the firefighting helicopters. They hadn't maintained them. They didn't use the money that was supposed to be used to maintain them. There was no like state presence. It was all private companies and people just on the ground helping each other and like civil defense. And, and that's when it was like very clear that we only have each other. Right. You will have to save yourselves, whether yeah, it's and, wildfire or bad governance. Right. And right on the like heels of that, they announced this tax and it was like the last straw that, yeah. okay, no, we don't need you anymore. But you were very early to this party. I mean, you, <laughs> you were saying how you, you weren't sure everybody else shared your optimism, uh, but you had started this podcast with, with your co-host that was literally called A Better Beirut, and yeah. you started it in October. Yeah, know? and that's late, in my opinion, honestly. But, you um, know, you were not the one that saw people uh, gathering around the egg or, uh, you know, in Martyr Square and decided then you would start to believe yeah, in the country. Yeah. That's you, been almost like a point of annoyance for me. Is like, now you believe in this? Like, come on. Had we started earlier, we would be so much further along down this uh, reconstruction plan, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't think, um, I think it's kind of late, but there's always been people here that have believed in a better Beirut. There's always been people working for that. That's what the podcast is about. It's, it's about trying to highlight these people that have decided to stay. A lot of them choose to stay. They don't have to. They have other options. But they decided to stick it out and make something work and try to create something better and it's really tough now because things are just going to get harder it's a long slog yeah um beirut has had as you put it 30 years of getting into this mess how quickly is it going to get yeah unraveling that kind of damage is going to take a while all right so how uh tell me about your story it starts in orange county yeah california yeah starts at a disco (laughs) <laughs> well, that's not my story. That's my parents' story. Yeah, well, they're kind of related. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't want to take credit for their lives. With, without the disco, <laughs> there is no fada. All right, so uh, your parents met at a disco. This, uh-huh. is, this is what they say. Yeah. I mean, I might, my in-laws met at a a bar in Chinatown in L.A. Oh, there you go. It seems probably the same place. That was the thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's the places where, where races could go and mix, uh, you know, safe, <laughs> Mingle. safely in the 70s and 80s uh, in, uh, in Southern California. Um, so your father was from here. Yeah. He was there studying, uh, getting his degree in engineering Okay. at CSULB. C-S-U-L-B. Uh-huh. I don't even know what the mascot for that place is. I don't but, either. <laughs> okay, but there it is. C-S. I have a feeling he wouldn't either. <laughs> California State University, Long Beach. Uh-huh. Yeah. It must be, uh, I don't know, let's call them the uh, centaurs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go centaurs. Uh, so, but he was a Muslim. He's from Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, an unusual character maybe at the disco. 
uh, I in Long Beach. I wouldn't say that. I no, because Orange County is like Arab American Central. Yeah, but I don't know if it was like that then. Yeah. I mean, it is now, but yeah, I'm yeah. not sure about the time then. And like, yeah, I grew up in a mixed household as far as um, like where both my parents came from, as far as religions. Um, but it's funny growing up here, you kind of, you have a different, uh, relationship to religion than you do in the States. Like in the States, I think people highlight different religions to highlight, uh, diversity and to highlight, you know, in being inclusive and having different kinds of people included in whatever they're covering or whatever they're doing. Whereas here, um, because religion has been tied to so many things and like even things that have nothing to do with religion, whether it's uh, laws or marriage or job quotas or whatever, you get kind of like, you kind of cringe at like people pointing out what your religion is or what, which camp you fall into. Yeah. Because it becomes something that like they see you through that lens rather than it not mattering. So it's like a totally different way of looking at it. So you would never define yourself as half Muslim, half Christian. No, I I jokingly say I'm Kruslam, like because it's Kruslam. yeah, it's yes. a term my friend coined, um, just to like answer a question sometimes. But I don't like to bring it into conversations because because it's mainly that there's this like yeah. it's like I don't want to be labeled as a token anything or whatever. And when you're but, talking about a better Beirut, I imagine it's a Beirut where that shit is not relevant yeah it's it i think people here or at least the younger generation a lot of them are so like grossed out by how much religion has to be a part of everything and it doesn't have to be religion can be a very individual personal thing it doesn't have to be screamed from the rooftops and it doesn't have to be in policy it doesn't have to be in who your president is or who your uh prime minister is supposed to be that's it's not supposed to be about that Right. It's supposed to be about merit. It's supposed to be about, are you qualified? <laughs> yeah. I mean... You sound like a protester. <laughs> <laughs> I can't turn it off. <laughs> no, I mean, this is, this is the amazing thing that people are having to point out, which sounds so simple when you say it, but, but the very carefully constructed shit cake that they've created in <laughs> government here is, is to apportion the spoils based on party, which is yeah, and related to religion. Yeah, it has nothing to do with what they actually make it sound like it does, like whether it's trying to um, make sure that everyone gets an equal piece of the pie. It's not about that. It's about lining your pockets. It's, it's about using religion to you know, maneuver the people the way you want and yeah. othering different religions so that you fear each other and that you can like mobilize according to, oh, they're threatening our, our existence. No one's threatening your existence. We're all threatened now. Like, we don't have running water. We don't have 24-7 electricity. We don't have basic good infrastructure. The country floods when it rains, like, for a day. That stuff matters. Right. What, why would religious rights mean anything if you can't be treated like a human? So... That's yeah, the message. I've gone off on a major tangent. Something to do that's, with wine. That's the message <laughs> at the heart of everything. That is B as for uh, better Beirut. Um, all right. Well, you moved here when you were 13. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was your first experience in kind of living. Living here. Yeah. yeah. I, I had visited and we'd stay with my grandma. And I'd been here, but I didn't really connect with the country. I was like very much an American kid and uh, almost like a white kid to a certain extent because I didn't really know this other side of my identity. And then moving here, I was like, I don't want to live here. I'm not going to fit in. It's going to be weird. And I'm American and they're not going to speak English. I just had this like, how is this going to work? And oddly, it, it worked right away. Like I went to school and it was like, I saw a part of my identity that I never really got to explore. And I started to understand like because a lot of the students that were in my class were similar to me where they went to American or British schools in different countries. And there was that um, combination of different places and being a little like displaced in a way, but um, you could adapt in a like you were always kind of the new kid in some sense. And being from one place, but also being from another place, but also belonging in one, but not belonging in it. Just this um, duality. But the thing about 
moving back here also was it wasn't your grandmother's village, which is in the far south on the border no, with Israel. No, we moved to Beirut. You moved to a big old city where yeah. there were going to be plenty of people. I mean, the English here is like, uh, it's like breathing air, you know. Yeah, I, I didn't know that as a kid. Like, yeah. I used to come here and I'd stay with the family. I didn't know what else was out there. Yeah. And, and then being here, I saw more parts of my life that made sense. Like, oh, now I get why we're like this. Oh, now I get the family thing. I get the warmth. I understand this. And, and now I, when I visit the States, it feels weird when I'm there. Now you're the outside. Yeah, now, like over there, I feel like my Arab side is more pronounced. And then when I'm here, it's my American side that's more pronounced. So they both kind of um, get turned on. Yeah. Depending on where I am, because how, you notice the differences. How long did it take for you to, you know, sort of fall for Beirut so unreasonably that you're now, <laughs> you know, manning the barricades? Oh, it's obvious. Uh. Uh, <laughs> well, I think as a high schooler, it was, um, I mean, I wouldn't say that was when it happened, but I definitely was like, I'm definitely going to UB. There was no question about it. At 16, I went to the campus and I'm like, this is it. I have to be here. To the American University. Yeah, it's a beautiful campus. But yeah, even before that, it just felt like home, Um, which is weird because I'm not born here. I didn't technically grow up here, although now I've spent more of my life here than in the States. But there is something about this place that kind of holds you, even to the point where if you would leave or you need to leave or you have to leave maybe, considering what's happening now, there are going to be a lot of people that will have to leave if they yeah. can. It's not something you want to do. And it's a little um, bittersweet. Like it's this place that always kind of makes you hope for more, but there's so much messed up about it. But that's also what's charming about it is like, it's so messed up, but it works in some weird way. I mean, but as a absolute token of devotion to the to the Lebanese project I guess from you and your family you were telling me the story earlier of what happened to you guys during the war Mm -hmm. with Israel yeah so tell me about that so in 2006 a offensive began Uh, Israel started bombing the southern suburbs of Beirut and our house went down in the bombings um, and you had evacuated a few days before. Uh, we had evacuated, I think, two and a half weeks before. So we were already like on the move for a while trying to figure out what's next. Just no one really knew what was going to happen or how long it was going to go. or Staying with ho- in hotels or with family. Yeah, or... just like moving around and waiting it out yeah. um, until we could go back home. And then we couldn't. So like when, when you're in this um, case of trying to, when you're, moving and not knowing where you're going to be the next day and what's going on. All you want to do is go home. All you want to do is be where you feel safe. And that wasn't an option anymore. So it was a weird way to start university because I had just graduated high school. Um, That's right. It was right after the prom. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something that just teaches you the what's important in life. And, you know, a house is just a place full of stuff and like my family is fine. So that's all that matters. Yeah. I mean, it is a, uh, I know that in the, in the protests and the revolution, the, the idea is to not allow excuses for the government to do the, the weird and ter- terrible things the government <laughs> does. But Lebanon is blessed with two disastrous neighbors uh, in Israel and Syria countries that you can't really go disastrous in different ways but yeah <laughs> yeah but but you know with with rich histories of equally problematic invading yeah. and occupying and in israel's yeah. case just full out blitzkrieging uh the population here and as those are the only neighbors you have so there's like this i don't know if it's a claustrophobia or it's this it's remarkable to me the the kind of culture and civilization that lebanon is carving out for itself in its own land, in which its is a tiny very little small. slice. It's yeah. so small. It's like three hours drive from north to south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tiny place um, and very diverse and very complicated and many different bubbles of people and styles of life, let's say. Um, but you guys had been here for like five or six years by the time point, yeah. when your house yeah. was bombed uh, by Israel and you lost everything. And, yeah. and 
you know, this is, this is your parents' story as well, but for you just about to start university, did that change? I mean, yes, the campus is gorgeous, but <laughs> I mean, you're asking well, a I lot didn't, of yourself. I didn't plan on going there in that, um, in those circumstances. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, it was a different first semester, I'll say. Um, yeah. but, but you weren't like Cal State University, Long Beach. Oh, no, I'm no, coming. no. It, it didn't even occur to me that like, oh, fuck this. I'm out. Like, we didn't evacuate. We didn't leave. We, you know, we were, I didn't even think about it. Uh, I wanted to go to UB. It wasn't, and I mean, at that stage, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not going to just like up and leave and everything is in shambles and we don't know what's going to happen. And like, in the end, I'm not going to be like, okay, you guys deal with it. I'm going to go to this university. Oh, can you pay my tuition by the way? Like, right. It, no. You had um, your sisters, you had your family. But you, yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't even like, oh, I can't leave them. No, I didn't want to go. Like, I wanted to go to AUB, and what happened didn't change that. It could have, perhaps, but I think it probably did for a lot of people. Um, the war definitely did um, encourage a lot of people to leave that may have been on the fence about it. I do know a lot of friends that decided to leave after that happened. Uh, and maybe they were planning on leaving just at a later stage, like after their bachelor's or something, but they were like, okay, maybe now is better. But it doesn't affect your life as a university student, um, that kind of uh, starting over. At least it didn't for me. Like I, the hardest part about it was like, oh, I don't really have a lot of different clothes to wear, which was fine. Like I came from a school that we wore uniforms every day. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, and considering what other people lost in that uh, war, it's fine. It's just stuff. It's it's nothing in comparison to people who've lost family members or they've lost everything. Like we were lucky enough to have something to fall back on. We had a housing, like my dad had a project he was working on that we could move into. So there was that, if we didn't have that, I don't know how it would have like unraveled or how it would have uh, changed things. But, you know, I consider myself lucky in comparison to a lot of people that went through the same thing or worse. So it's it's a question of perspective. Yeah. How you how you look at obviously at the time it was horrible. Yeah. At the time it was like, what the fuck are we gonna do now? Like, what does that even mean? Now what? Like, it was very. It was purely that feeling that you just want to go home, and now you can't, and now you're like, well, what now? And not knowing what that means, and when is it gonna end? Because it was not over yet. So you're just like. Right. Okay. Well, that's done. And it was, you know, as as a lot of these conflagrations seem to be, it was it was built on an incident, kind of building on another, and you know, and that that sort of rumor of war that that is always hanging in the background. Yeah. <laughs> even now, I think it's there. Even now. Yeah. Even now, where this like revolution has nothing to do with it per se, it's very much an internal thing. There's still like, well, Israel might. They could bomb us. They could have a preemptive strike. They could, you know, like it's always there. Yeah. Um, there's this, always this fear that if um, the revolution doesn't turn to their liking or something, I don't know. Knows? I don't know right. that you don't really need a lot of excuses. Like there's, <laughs> it's been really small things in the past, uh, small, like when you think of the response. Yeah. So yeah, you never really know what might be used as a reason. Yeah. Um, and then, in comparison to such a country, it's not easy to stand up to that. Like, yeah, 2006, you went through the process of going through college, ended up doing your, your undergraduate degree and had the, the great luxury of choosing a degree that was not eventually your <laughs> profession, your profession. Uh, so moving through, uh, all of that, you, you, you were uh, pre-med and then you went into marketing, graphic design, uh, graphic design. Yeah. Technically, both of them are not really my profession anymore, but they both come into it at the same time. Like, I'm not a graphic designer. I'm not a biologist, but I am a person of wine and retail and marketing. And somehow they all play a role. Like, I do a lot of the design work, the creative work, the communication work. And I understand the science and the art behind these different um, things. And it's, I didn't think that my biology degree was going to come in for this. And especially to, to reunite with your graphic yeah. design and 
Uh, like after doing them together, it was like, oh, these are never going to combine unless I do like scientific illustrations for some like, you know, MCAT study book or something. Never wanted to do that. Dare to dream. Ugh. I mean, they're, they're incredibly impressive. I've heard they're well paid. Uh, <laughs> oh man, the detail and the, the, the grossness. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, tell me about Wesley. Uh, Wesley's is my family business. It's like the Costco of Lebanon. Uh, it was named for my uncle on my mom's side, uh, as a tribute to him cause he passed away a couple of years back. And, um, yeah, we import American goods to the country of Lebanon, um, from big box stores. Uh, so big box stores. Um, so Sam's Costco, BJ's, um, and as well as other independent, uh, wholesalers and, uh, distributors and straight direct from brands as well. Sometimes I'm picturing just like dudes going down an aisle with a huge cart, just collecting stuff I would for Wesley's. Hope that that was the case. <laughs> um, yeah, we sell family size stuff and we sell retail size stuff, but and we were doing really well. Uh, right now, with what's happening, it's been a bit of a challenge um, because of the banks uh, restrict the bank restrictions on payments on uh, transferring cash outside of the country. Right. You're literally not allowed to make we payments to the outside can't world. restock at the moment. We can't um, like it's making it really hard to operate as a business in general, but then as a business that is heavily dependent or entirely dependent on imports is making it almost impossible. What is the relationship for Beirutis with, um, American goods, like what? What's the stuff that they oh, man. that Everything. they go crazy they, for? They love um, Kirkland coffee is a huge thing. Um, yeah, and they like the the particular like organic, um, obscure like specialty diet stuff. Like psyllium husk has been a big thing because of the keto diet is like super trendy right now. Uh, anything coconut oil, coconut flour, almond flour based. Um, all these really like particular gluten-free is huge. Wow. Uh, vegan is really taking off. Like, so all these like small um, niche markets, uh, we do really well with that. And we were kind of like the trailblazers in a lot of those things. But yeah, right now it's just, I don't know what's going to happen. What's the, what are these poor keto guys? Because the minute you go <laughs> off of keto, then don't you just like uh, balloon up and you lose all will to live? I've heard I good things. I don't know. I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not <laughs> a dietitian. Right. This but. is this is your bread and butter. I'm not or sorry, no bread, no butter. But uh, <laughs> exactly, it is. Uh, it, it that is one uh, cultural export. I guess there have been many from Rambo on down that I'm not like <laughs> super excited about, but. Uh, there we are. I guess we're sending keto out into the universe. Yeah, no, the relationship to the U.S. here is pretty strong and positive. So many people here have studied there, have studied in the U.S. or have lived in the U.S. or have kids in the U.S. that are studying there or working there. It is like still seen as this place of opportunity and um, openness and like forward thinking. Um, put Trump aside, but like <laughs> it's still seen that way. And it's still seen in high regard um and the products are also seen that way as being high quality um good products good value uh tasty obviously uh so there is that reputation of like um bang for your buck yeah um but also we are slightly more expensive because of all the imports and everything the import taxes and customs and fees and stuff but i think um we created a name for ourselves. We created like a seal of approval. So if you know that it's at our store, that means it's probably some good stuff. Uh, it's gone through like exhaustive measures and like that means it's something worth having. And like there is that form of trust now with the customers. So, yeah. Like they know it's actually from the U.S. It's not manufactured elsewhere. It's, it's legit. Like it's, this is the real Kirkland. Yeah, we handle the supply chain. So like we know where it's coming from. Uh, but that means, yeah, it's a lot more costly, a lot harder to manage, uh, a lot to, a lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah. Uh, and it took a long time to build that. Yeah. And you, like a lot of other people, have a tremendous amount of skin in the game now when they're shutting off payments outside. Yeah. And, the country itself yeah. is completely dependent on imports, like not just as our business. Uh, the country is not a producing country. We have agriculture. We have wine. We have olive oil. We have honey. But... Everything that allows us to sell it is not from here. We don't have jars. We don't have labels. We don't have cork. We don't. 
Like we don't have right. the raw materials to produce these things. We so don't have could, factories. We you don't could have. host like an endless, very messy happy hour with hors d'oeuvres and oh, yeah. wine. No, we've got great <laughs> stuff. We've got great <laughs> cheese and dairy and local produce and um, like our tomatoes are fantastic. Um, but, but nothing to ship it in. But yeah, shipping is a problem and we don't, we can't compete as far as volume because it just wasn't a sector that was encouraged or funded. It wasn't pushed. They focused all their energy on tourism and, you know, selling the idea and the glitz and the glamour of downtown. And, but it's not sustainable. Like we need something that's actually going to bring in more cash. Instead, we were importing everything and relying on money from expats sending money home. And nobody's going to do that anymore. Like nobody trusts this banking sector. No one's right because everybody's money is locked up in banks yeah. that won't release it. And I mean, we it was this extraordinary commentary. I mean, you I, I can't think of someone who's combined. Uh, a love and knowledge and interest of wine with this kind of like uh, very current political sensibility than you. So it's kind of amazing. to. It is a weird <laughs> combo. No, but like we walked into Domain Huerta, the, uh, this, this great uh, tasting room and producer uh, out in the Beca Valley and they were just sending, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of bottles down the line that have no labels. <laughs> ready for them because their labels are all imported. They can't, Khalil can't find the right printer here in Lebanon uh, and had been bringing them all in and now he can't get them. Again, They're going to run labels. out of cork soon. And and it's like the metaphor is just screaming down the production line of like, shit, like you make this wine, you've been making it for thousands of years. It's incredible product, but the supply chain is not there to actually do regular ass things like get it bottled and slap a label on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the problem with, um, wine here as a, as a industry is that so much of the raw, um, ingredients. Yeah. If you look at the bottle, everything of that bottle is not made here except for the liquid inside the glass, the label, the cork, the seal, everything comes from abroad. And that tax on added expense, added cost, added um, headaches. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, from locals and people abroad, you know, like our prices are high for wine, for entry-level wines. Uh, but that's why. Machinery is super expensive. We don't pump out volume like other wineries across Europe. Um, and your costs don't change. If you're a smaller winery, you need the same machinery. Mm -hmm. um, so that's... So an, an entry-level bottle is like $12 to 20 No, or... we have some now that are about $8, uh -huh. uh, $10. But like you will not find something that's a $3 bottle. No right. Way. I mean, compared to doesn't these like exist. $2 or two euro like yeah, Aldi no, wines. Yeah. No. If we want to look at it as far as quality versus price, it's very good value. But the general consumer might not know how to detect that. They're just like, I just want to drink something with my dinner. I don't like, I don't know enough to appreciate what this, what I'm actually drinking. And they'll compare price to price and be like, why? Um, but yeah, they'll forget the taxes and the customs and all the other layers that are added on top of these wines that come in from different countries. And then there's this like weird inferiority complex of, you know, imported means better. And I know it's funny coming from me, someone who's selling imports. Um, <laughs> like that's that's what I do, but it's not a statement that you would make as a blanket. Uh, yeah, but that doesn't mean that everything is better than everything abroad is better than what's made here. We can make good stuff too. Like we do make good stuff. We have good wine. We have good honey. We have a lot of good products made locally. Just because there are good things abroad doesn't necessarily mean you have to cancel out what is made at home. Um, but yeah, it's some kind of feeling that, you know, foreign is better or we are less than. Or is that a colonial hangover? Maybe. I don't, I don't know where complex. it's rooted yeah. in. Um, obviously, they think that like there is this impression that French wine is better than Lebanese wine. And I don't know what that um, like why that's 
It might just be this, the... I think the French might have told you that. <laughs> maybe, but it might also just be the reputation of French wine is yeah. so much further along. Like, it's definitely surpassed us. Obviously, they are, like, the grandfathers of the wine industry as far as everyone is concerned. But I, um, I even love the way that you phrase that. French wine has surpassed us. But of course, because we were just walking in a temple that's 5,000 fucking years no, old. No, like, surpassed us as far as a reputation. Yeah. Like, people know French wine. They've yeah. heard of French wine. Bordeaux yeah. and Burgundy and, oh, my God, the Loire. And, yeah. you know, like, people know about this. But back in the Temple of Bacchus days. Yeah. The Phoenicians were the shit. The Phoenicians. <laughs> and the Phoenicians, by the way, brought... I, I'm spitting this back to you as if you had not told me the same thing <laughs> earlier. This came from you. But the Phoenicians brought these different varietals over to Spain. Mm -hmm. These are, you're just repatriating some of this yeah. culture and bringing it back in. I mean, we brought over, um, you know, vines from Algeria. We brought in French vines from Algeria way back when, but we have indigenous varieties as well that can, you know, wow people across the board. Um, I mean, this Obedi mm -hmm. white grape, was one of the best wines I've had in a long time. And Boom. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I don't know. Uh, I don't have the vocabulary or the, you know, kind of uh, cleverness of palate to really get into wine, but I know what I like, and that was so good. Was it because it was different or because it was good? I mean, one, different is hard for me because I think a lot of wine is different. I don't drink enough to be like... I've had them all. Okay. You know, like... Well, that, I, that's better, though. That means it's just, just good. You just I'm, liked it. I just liked it. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I, listen, if you have... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always a sucker for the story. <laughs> Same. And, this, and the story <laughs> is strong. I mean, this is what the whole day that you built out uh -huh. for us today was all about that story, starting in the way, way back... <laughs> with, with the tipsy, you know, nymphs carrying amphoras on the, you know, in, yeah. the, in the bas relief uh, portions of the, the temple. So it's like you start from there and then you go in to say, well, here are the indigenous grapes. They are going to have a head start. But I actually just in terms of the taste, because like I don't like that, you know, the, the, like this kind of crisp or fresh white wine. It's just not nearly as interesting as something that's got some funk to it. Okay. You know, and the... <laughs> funk is never a positive word usually. It's kind of In like, wine? Is there a fault with this? No, like, Is that a really? bad thing? Because uh, I kept saying it. <laughs> I think it's great. Who doesn't love funk? Oh, man. I'm going to have to go to wine, uh, like um, non-offensive wine praise uh, <laughs> Words school. you must not say. It's funky weird like it turned uh no yeah. it was funky it was like it's good it's got like like some it's got some personality yeah. yeah yeah it's different that's the obedi yeah that's know. the indigenous white grape that's one of two i'd say that are officially confirmed 100 percent lebanese based on dna analysis and the other is the merois the merois yeah. yeah also a white grape um there are other grapes that we suspect would be indigenous but they haven't been officially confirmed according to dna so we can't say if they're really indigenous or if they're just an international variety that is known by um, you know, a common name amongst farmers, but it actually turns out to be like a Malbec or something. Yeah. I'm just throwing that out. But like um, we might just have international varieties that turn out to not be indigenous. How, For how a much, long time, people thought Albeda was a Chardonnay relative. So Yeah. How much funk is in the Merois? Merois is much flowerier. It's okay. more... Uh, floral, yeah. Then I probably wouldn't like it as much it's as different. the Obedi. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different thing. Anyway, uh, it's it is like a it's it's an amazing thing to be able to go and see it and taste it and 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 know that it's good, <laughs> um, and that it's not something that people would expect or is really still on the radar. I mean, you're the decades and decades of selling Lebanese wine abroad are are obviously building towards something, but uh, it's it's crowded. Yeah. And here we get to something pleasantly actionable. If you really want to get into this Obeda culture and understand that ancient and indigenous white grape of Lebanon, there are three outstanding monocipages, wines that only use Obeda grapes, that you should dive into. Farah's recommendations are these three. The Chateau Saint Thomas, the Sept, which is S-E-P-T, like the number seven, in French, and of course, the wine that I took back home via Sweden and Norway, the Monosapage Domain Werdi Obeda. What a fucking bottle of wine. Now back to the conclusion of our conversation. 
I think I think the Lebanese uh, wineries or wine industry are pushing more the idea that uh, we can't compete with these big names in these big regions. The point is to carve out a name for ourselves and create an identity that is Lebanese and makes people seek out our wines or seek out wines from Lebanon, not just wine from the Bika or wine from this particular winery, but build a reputation as a country, similar to what Napa Valley did, where they built their brand of Napa and that helped everybody. And now any wine from Napa is automatically like 60 bucks baseline. So that's what we're trying to work towards is building the reputation of wine from Lebanon and making it more like operating like a boutique winery as a country to become, yeah, this like thing that people seek out and they want to try. Yeah. Which means universal standards. Yeah. Which, Which I think we the... can compete. We do and we yeah. do well. So what is the conversation like on the floor of Wesley's when people are coming in for wine? Are you like, are you steering them away? Cause you sell both, you sell <laughs> yeah. Californians. This is the whole point of, you know, the original point of the store. Uh, but are you kind of always kind of gently guiding them by the shoulders yeah, toward the Lebanese section? I, am. I wanted to say a diplomatic answer, but like, no, I, I do steer them over to the Lebanese section because I think there's so much that people haven't tried and they don't know and there's stories that they should discover. And I think that they would connect with them more because it's, you know, it's a place they might have heard of or it's a village they know or it's a family they've heard of or... Or it's a place they could go. I yeah, mean, this is, we're talking exactly. about an hour, hour and a half outside of Beirut. Yeah, most wineries are not that far away. Um, so it's, they're accessible and like for a long time, some of these wineries had wines that were not easily available within the city. So instead of going for the names that maybe everybody knows, try this one, try this one. And they are more willing to try something new that's Lebanese than to try something American they've never heard of. Okay. Well, so that's... there's something, but there's also like a price barrier there. So. Right, because there's an 8,000% tax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they might be more willing to try like a really good bottle of local wine versus like a okay bottle from like uh, California, not even a specific region. Just like, Oh, just the, the yeah. California blend. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so. But I mean, it's it to bring it back to the sort of uh, obsessive conversation on everybody's minds, It the way that you talk about Lebanese wine is also... A, a journey of like self-discovery and self-acceptance <laughs> by the Lebanese people on some way. Uh, what do you mean? Well, I mean, like one of the things that you, that really blew my mind today was just going to Baalbek and you saying, well, you know, in Beirut, it's got a bad reputation to come out here yeah, or that people kind of stay in their own bubbles here, mm -hmm. that it's a society that had forgotten how to trust each other and like how to like interact with other regions, even though they are literally right next to each other. Yeah. You know, there are places in Queens that are farther from my house in Manhattan than the Baalbek, uh, <laughs> you know, area is from Beirut. So it's like, how do you, part of the mission that sounds like it's happening on the streets is getting people to mingle and like yeah, be Lebanese. There are so many people that have gone to new regions or new cities that they never went to before and they've lived here all their lives, which is really weird to say because it's such a small place. It's not that hard to you know, go for a drive for like an hour and 15 minutes and you're on the, like one of the furthest towns in inland or maybe you're, you know, 90 kilometers north of the capital and it's a totally different world. And yet people weren't doing it. There was this fear. There was, oh, it's not safe. Like, I don't know if I'd be welcome there. And it's like, it's this weird misconception, this weird, um, these invisible boundaries that were drawn by I don't know who, and it was just working into the favor of the government and how they could fuel these uh, divisions across people so that they wouldn't unite against them, maybe. For me personally, it, it didn't change like my, like I didn't suddenly want to go to Baalbek because of wine. It wasn't that I wanted to go to this one village because of wine, but it's a good excuse because I love to meet new people and hear a story and go somewhere new and have them show me what's special about it. Because uh, you could go to a village somewhere in you know the south or the north or wherever, and you won't know the significance of anything. But if you see it through the eyes of a local, even if I'm a local technically, but you have like a local who lives in this village and their family was been has been there for generations, they can tell you the significance of this, you know, rock on the corner or 
that little shop over there and they'll tell you this is how we built what we have and it's so much richer than that and yeah so I'm definitely a sucker for the story too obviously <laughs> I think that influences also like how you experience the wine yeah uh, to a certain extent which is always a little um delicate because it's like do I like the story or do I like the wine yeah right the winemaker is like sitting there saying god damn it <laughs> this yeah, wine yeah. is objectively great even if it had a terrible story but that is, you know, that that entire sentiment about how people are siloed and how that can be the worst thing for a country. I just, I I'm sure the U.S. can relate. Well, I I uh, I don't understand the call to prayer or what the Mazan is saying, but I think he's telling us to <laughs> wrap it up, guys. It's time sure. to go to the mosque or uh, have some more wine or however we celebrate. Oh, what a combination of a sentence. <laughs> That's exactly what he's saying. He's <laughs> like, have some wine, come to the mosque, whatever you want to do. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer and was here in Beirut with me. Theme music by Dan the Automator, episode illustration by Daisy D. Sound mastering and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. I had asked Farah, whom I have been lucky enough to keep in touch with throughout the pandemic, to give me an update for herself for this episode. I was just going to mention it in a sentence or two, but she wrote me something so beautiful that I couldn't just summarize it and then set it aside. So here is what she wrote me in its entirety about the change in her life since this episode was first recorded. When we spoke that day, she wrote, there was still a lot of euphoria still filling our lungs from the early days of the revolution. But since then, everything around me had spiraled downward to the point where it was hard to see what we were supposed to do as people. And that was before the August blast. As someone who had been trying to figure out a way to keep a foot in the country and still grow as an adult, The port explosion rocked my own foundations as much as it did the foundations of our capital. I didn't know what to hold on to when something so brutal could happen without remorse, justice, or surprise. And now I'm one of the many who has left my family behind so that I can move forward elsewhere. Being from Lebanon means that you're constantly in a state of separation from your chosen family and country or your own fulfillment. And being able to choose which one you're separated from means you're one of the lucky ones. Good luck and Godspeed, Farah. I know you'll kick ass wherever you land. Next week, we are going from Beirut to frozen Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, in yet another death-defying pivot on this podcast. And why New Hampshire? Well, because just before the pandemic, we were there for the first in the nation primary as odd and captivating and hard drinking a political tradition as you will find in these United States. We will meet you there.